0: with Christ, that we are able to bring forth fruit. We never can do it, either now or forever. We can't do it in ourselves. Now, in our Christian life study, we will make a strong point of this in sanctification, a detailed point, a careful study. But it would be false to give this study now of our union with Christ without pointing out this and making it a very strong point and emphasizing just sanctification in this regard is not automatic. There must be an action in faith to lay hold of these and then comes forth through us these these offices of Christ himself into the world. Now the Bible says that it is only through our union with Christ that we are able to bring forth fruit. We never can do it either now or forever we can't do it in ourselves now in our christian life study we will make a strong point of this in sanctification and a detailed point a careful study but it would be false to give this study now of uh, our union with christ without pointing out this and making it a very strong point an emphasized point those of you have taken the introductory studies here at farrell house which i hope most of you have done on the book of Romans. Well, remember we pointed out in studying the 8th chapter that we need the power of the resurrected Christ to bring forth the fruit through us. And his power flows to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the agent who brings to us what? The power of the crucified crucified and resurrected Christ that he can bring forth fruit through us now. Well, there is no other way. There is no other way. In John fifteen five, this emphasis of abide in Christ. There is no other way. We can't bring forth fruit except as we abide in Christ. It isn't. It isn't possible. It isn't that we are called upon to bring forth a little bit miserable fruit in ourselves, and then if we if we abide in Christ, we can bring forth something else. It's much stronger than this. Uh, what our religious activities, not Christian fruit at all, is not spiritual fruit at all, unless it's the fruit of Jesus Christ. We may be an activist, we may do many religious things, and yet it not be it not be really from a biblical view spiritual fruit at all. If the fruit is his if the fruit is spiritual fruit it will be the fruit of the crucified and the risen Christ. I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth forth much fruit. For without me, severed from me, you can do nothing. It isn't that you can only, you can only do a, a little bit. You can't do anything. Nothing at all. So we begin to see that this union, identification with Christ is a, is a tremendous factor and should be in our thinking. It should be a living thing in our thinking. In Second Corinthians twelve nine, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient unto thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is it. It's that he might bring forth the fruit. In the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, and the tenth verse, Ephesians 2, 10. For ye are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is the call. It's, it's in Christ that this word, good works, is to have meaning. In Ephesians three seventeen through 19, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being grounded, rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, in order that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's the same thing. Philippians one eleven. We are so, we're apt to be so poor in our Christian life. If we have an understanding of salvation, of justification, with full biblical strength, the removal of our guilt, and we stop there without seeing the our present riches in, in on the basis of the finished work of Christ, as the adopted sons of God, as united with Christ, we are poor, exceedingly poor. Philippians 1.11 being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. This has the whole thing in it. It's to His praise, but it's by Jesus Christ. And therein we can be filled with with the fruits of righteousness. Now, the Bible always has negative elements in it, and I want to end with a negative element here. It is the negative element that... If I am not doing this, it is not neutral. I am failing. In Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation am I hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ may be magnified in my body, whether it is by life or by death. You remember in, uh, we, in speaking of the Father, when we finished our study of adoption, we had a negative element in John fifteen eight that it was by abiding in Christ that we could bring forth fruit to the praise of the Father in the present life. So if we were failing to bring forth the fruit, it was we were diminishing uh, that opportunity which we have to show forth praise to the Father in the present life. The one who needs no glory, yet nevertheless may be glorified. This is the beautiful thing that the Scripture presents to us. Now, it's the same thing here. If I am living less than we have spoken of in the present life in relationship to the reality of the possibility of Christ bringing forth the fruit through me, Christ is not magnified in my body. And this is a negative thought. It is possible for me so to live that the glory of Christ in my present body is not being shown forth into the present evil world it's perfectly possible my calling is to show forth the glory of the father it is to glorify the son in the present bo- in my present body but if i if for one reason or another do are not bringing forth i' not bringing forth his fruit if i'm not allowing the mystical union with christ to produce what it naturally will produce i am robbing my christ of his glory in the present evil world So there is this negative thing that must be said. Now we have studied the first new relationship adopted by the Father, the second new relationship identified and united with God the Son. Now we come to the third. The third new relationship, which is the new relationship we have immediately a justification by the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. So we are adopted by the Father, we are united to the Son, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now God the Holy Spirit is a person, he's a third person in the Trinity. And the Bible tells us that this person lives within me when I have accepted Christ as my Saviour. So suddenly, you see, if my guilt is gone in justification, I'm brought into a living, personal relationship, an intimate relationship with each of the three persons of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit lives within. Now, we find that in the book of Joel, back in the Old Testament, the prophecy was made that the time would come where, where uh, God's people would have a special relationship uh, to, the, um, to the Holy Spirit. In Joel 2, 28 and 29. And shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my Spirit. Now, after the day of Pentecost, this verse was applied uh, as being fulfilled by the day These verses were applied as being fulfilled in at the day of Pentecost. Now actually at the day of Pentecost the quotation runs on further. The quotation runs on uh, down through the middle of the thirty second verse if you'll glance down through that in the second chapter of Joel. And if you examine that you will find this carries you up into the second coming of Christ. And then interestingly enough, however, the book of the book of Acts Stops this quotation of Joel uh, halfway through the 32nd verse. It doesn't finish it. So clearly it would seem to me the indication is there's a unity here. There's a diversity in unity. And this will be fulfilled in a different way, in a in the salvation of God's ancient people, the Jews, in the second, the, same, the second coming of Christ. But nevertheless, this won't be different from Pentecost. And what will happen to them as they believe all Israel being saved then is the same that happened at Pentecost uh, to, to the Christians and happens to us when we accept Christ as our Savior. That is, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you will have, they will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit as we are now indwelt <laughs> by the Holy Spirit. So here you have the book of Joel making this prophecy and the book of Acts applying it to the day of Pentecost saying this is when it was fulfilled in this aspect of it. Now then, actually, however, the promises uh, of the coming of the Holy Spirit in a special sense, in the New Testament sense, do not rest only upon this one prophecy in the book of Joel. There are other prophecies as well. In the book of John, the 14th chapter, we find prophecies by Christ, Christ speaking uh, in prophecy. In John fourteen sixteen, and I will Pray the Father, and he shall give you, that future, another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. There is a double thing here. A present relationship to the Holy Spirit, but there's something special uh, that will be in the future. And John explains this surely in the 7th chapter, in the 38th verse of the Gospel according to John. In John 7, 38. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, this is Jesus speaking, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then the 39th verse gives the explanation. But this he spake of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we don't have to guess as what's involved here. We have the prophecy in Joel. We have Jesus giving the prophecy of something future to that moment. We have the Gospel of John itself telling us what is involved, that Jesus must be glorified. He is to die. He is to pay the price. He is, and as he pays the price and comes to his time of glory, the Holy Spirit will then be given in a special fashion. Turning back with that explanation from John itself to John sixteen seven. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless I tell you the truth, is it expedient for you that I go away? For if I go not away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart I will send him to you. Surely this is future, couldn't be anything else. Special relationship to the Holy Spirit. You'll notice here something that's breathtaking. Jesus said, it's a good thing that I go away. Now, surely we often wish, I wish he wasn't gone. We all must wish this at times. But he's saying, it's expedient for you I go away, because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to live within yourself. In a very real sense, he's going to be closer to you uh, uh, than uh, than Jesus could be if he was in Jerusalem tonight, for example. In a very real sense. The Comforter is to dwell within. And you notice Jesus insists on this prophecy. Now, remember, these are all prophecies because they hadn't taken place yet. These are as much a prophecy as the book of Joel is a prophecy, much closer to the time of fulfillment at Pentecost and yet still a prophecy. And the last such word is in Acts 1.5. For John truly baptized with water, but she shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And it really wasn't. It was only ten days hence. By the time you get to this point, the prophecy, which was a long time after the, the book of Joel, is only ten days away. Now you remember John the Baptist also was a prophet, in the sense that he made prophecies concerning this same event, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the, the individual Christian. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptizer is speaking, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose sure shoe I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And certainly, as you think of the day of Pentecost, this is what was fulfilled. So you have, as John the Baptist, John the Baptist, we often think of his prophecy as being, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And first, certainly, that must be understood as his message. But there's a second part of his message. When this one comes, this Messiah, he will baptize you. He will baptize you. Now then, the book of Acts, the second chapter, verses 1 through 18, tells the fulfillment of these, of these prophecies, whether it's the book of Joel, whether it's Jesus prophesying before or after his resurrection, because, of course, Acts, Acts 5 was a prophecy after his resurrection, or whether it was the prophecy of John the Baptist. And in, in Acts 1... Uh, Acts 2, 1 through 18, this takes place. And you find the the testimony being Peter himself giving the testimony in verses 17 and 18, 19, 20, 21, relating this to the prophecy in Joel. You notice he reads, he gives part up through the second coming of Christ because it's quite obvious that he is trying to, he's waiting to arrive, he's trying to arrive at the uh, at not the end of the thing because he, he didn't finish the prophecy of Joel, but he stopped in the middle of it. But he was arriving at the phrase, who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall we say. That's what he wants to end with. This is something that is to mark this whole era, whether it is this time of Pentecost or whether it's to reach on up to the salvation of, uh, of Israel. So he he read, he read through part of that which pertains to the second coming, so that he can state this great principle: whosoever, whosoever, it's as strong a word as you can have, and the French would be kekank. It's it's as strong as one could possess. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he he, the Bible itself insists upon this being the fulfillment of the Joel passage, but not totally, you see. Now the Bible makes plain that though there was a transition period, and you find times when the Holy Spirit was given subsequent to a person believing by the putting on hands, yet the Bible makes very plain that this was not to be that which is to be considered the mark of this uh, this, this era in which we live in acts 238 Peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost it's a promise immediately right here in the second chapter itself the coming of the Holy Spirit is related to those absolutely who will believe so it is it has occurred but if you will believe now says Peter you'll have the, you'll receive the Holy Spirit too. Now, there is true, it is true, there are certain, in this transition period, certain cases where the laying of hands on is emphasized. But this is not the mark of this era. And this is demonstrated most abundantly in Romans 8, 9. In Romans 8, 9, the great chapter of the Holy Spirit, we read, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There's no doubt that this is the Holy Spirit. I won't go into it tonight, because I've done it already in our study in the book of Romans. Clear indication, this this term, the Spirit of Christ, is the Holy Spirit. You can find this very carefully in studying the New Testament. So, therefore, we're told in this verse something that's overwhelming, and that is simply this. If you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, because every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In this era, this is that which is to be the mark. This is that which is to be considered normal. Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Then you have a new relationship with the third person, the Trinity. You have the relationship of the indwelling of the third person, the Trinity, even of the Holy Spirit. In First John 4.13, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. If we dwell in Him, if we're a Christian... He has given us of His own Spirit. Now, therefore, what we find coming to this is that this every born-again Christian, as soon as he has accepted Jesus as his Savior, as soon as his guilt is removed, he enters into this living, intimate relationship with the third person, the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is declared to to dwell within him. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? This is an absolute statement to every born-again Christian. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? You are the temple of God, because the, as the Holy Spirit dwells in you. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, the same thing. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? Would you have a God, and you are not your own? Now remember, He's the Holy Spirit, and what's being called for called for here is a life of holiness on the basis of who it is that lives within. Now the interesting thing is that very shortly after this was written, the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Titus. The Titus destroyed the temple, and does it mean there is no temple of God on the earth? The answer is absolutely not. The individual Christian is to be the temple of God. It's a very sobering nut. Very beautiful, but very sober. There is to be a temple on the earth. You are to be the temple. I am to be the temple. Every one of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior. The temple was torn down, but there are temples on the earth. We are the temple. We are the temple. Here in French-speaking Europe, of course, the Protestant churches are called the temple the temple that was to distinguish them between that and roman catholic churches but nevertheless we must say though they they do it without thinking surely it's it's inaccurate the bible the these churches these church buildings aren't, aren't temples the temple was destroyed the real temple on the earth today is not to be the local church building it is to be the christian the christian the christian is the temple and the christian is a temple because he is indwelt by the holy spirit in 2 Timothy 1.14, of course, you will realize we, if we were dealing in sermon material, many, many of these points could make up full sermons and long studies. But that isn't my purpose in this. My purpose is to give you the factual basis of our relationship, our personal, intimate relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So in a rather short compass of time of just these two lectures, last time and this, you can get the full, full force of this. And then we can go on and develop it further, as I say in our study of the Christian life in the next series of tapes. Second Timothy 1.14 That good thing which was committed to thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. The Holy Ghost that dwelleth in us. Now, from the other passages of Paul, it's very obvious he doesn't mean it dwells in us as a unit. It isn't just some special relationship to the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, to the whole block of the Church, but it's in every individual, an individual thing. So now then, you see, the interesting thing is that for us, this intimate personal relationship is is more to the Holy Spirit than it is to the Father and the Son, in one sense, because he really indwells us. Not really, in another sense, but in one sense, yes. The Holy Spirit becomes the agency of the Trinity to me. It is surely the biblical picture. Now for a moment, let's think of some examples of the Holy Spirit's activities, so we can understand something practical about this and the force of something. Though remembering, I'm making no attempt to exhaust any of this in these studies. We want, what we want is the, the doctrines of the Bible here, the doctrinal framework of the Bible. But I would point this out to you. Surely we must feel, after a study like this tonight, It it is inadmissible to make the study of doctrine a cold, dead thing. It's never meant to be a cold, dead thing. It must be a living thing. It is a living thing. You can't have the results of Christianity without the doctrinal framework of Christianity. But the doctrinal framework of Christianity isn't just to be a thing in itself. These are the bones. These are the bones, in a sense. It's to be a living, pulsing relationship. Our Christianity isn't to be in relationship, finally, even to orthodoxy even a good doctrine, our Christianity is to be a personal relationship with God himself. That having accepted Christ as my Savior, there are present riches, and the present riches above everything is my guilt being gone, I am returned to the relationship I was made to have originally as a creature with the creator. And God being a Trinity, the Bible points out this marvelous fact that as soon as my guilt is gone, I am brought to a personal relationship with each of the three persons the Trinity not just one or the other but each of the three persons now then in John 16 8 and when he has come he will reprove that's the Holy Spirit he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment he will convince them now we could spend a lot of time considering this verse but I'm not going to I'm just pointing out some examples of the Holy Spirit's activity the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit is, he will, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. But where is the Holy Spirit in this special relationship, as it's given here in the, notice the 16th chapter, is the one that has the 7th verse. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. In relationship to us, in indwelling us, Well, the Holy Spirit's work through us as individual Christians should be of such a nature that the world is reproved of sin. That's to be our calling. That's to be our calling. Of course, we must always point out that throughout the whole Scripture, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a regeneration needed of the work of the Holy Spirit. In generation in, in John three five, Jesus answered verily verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter to the kingdom of God. In the sixth verse, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In the eighth verse, so is every one that is born of the spirit. So, throughout the scriptures, the Old and New Testament alike, uh, there is a there is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Now we ought to point out here that because we we emphasize the fact there is a new relationship from pentecost onward after christ has died and glorified it doesn't mean the holy spirit didn't exist before of course he's always existed before the creation of the world so we can be told in creation that the holy spirit brooded over the waters of the deep the holy spirit was there at creation nor does it mean the holy spirit didn't any have any activity on the earth before jesus came and was glorified the Holy Spirit had much activity in the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, regeneration, but also upon the priests, upon, or upon the prophets, upon the kings in the various relationships. It's simply that you know, so fulfilling the prophecy of Joel at Pentecost, it is that every individual Christian now is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't active pre- previous to Pentecost, of course. It a, is a different relationship. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't active prior to this. But I don't want to go into this tonight. But just a word of warning here. Just because the emphasis we're putting, the one emphasis here that the Bible gives of a new relationship at Pentecost, we're not to minimize the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in creation or in regeneration or in the Old Testament period. Now, speaking of the examples of the Holy Spirit's activity a bit more, we find that the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. John fifteen twenty six. John fifteen twenty six. For when I will se- when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit will use us, uh, working through us, to testify of Christ. It is Christ who is glorified in the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, does not bear testimony to himself according to the scriptural teaching. Now, it is perfectly true, it is perfectly true, surely, that we have minimized the work of the Holy Spirit. If you doubt this, just open your body, any hymn book to the number of hymns that are committed to the... that have anything to say about the Holy Spirit. Preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit and try to find a hymn to finish the sermon. You've got about three hymns to choose from, just about. Surely the Church has been poor at this point. Open the Westminster Confession of Faith. I would say, the, the the church is poor at this point. But nevertheless, there is the opposite thing. The center is not the Holy Spirit in this sense. When I find people, and of course sometimes just overcompensation because so much of the church has been so poor about the Holy Spirit, and some people tend to make Him the center, as it were. But I think this is a mistake. The balance of it surely is the Holy Spirit must not be must not be uh, minimized. We mustn't forget this: this wonder of the wealth we have, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who He is, His work, and yet the testimony of the Holy Spirit will be the, the testifying to Jesus Christ. This is what it says: Jesus says He will do. John fifteen twenty-six, John sixteen fourteen, John sixteen fourteen. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive a Mine and show it unto show it unto you. What He's going to glorify us. Is by showing the things of Christ to us. It's the same thing in the book of Act in the book of uh, Romans. It is made plain that He takes the power uh, of the crucified and risen Christ and mediates it to us. It's the glorified Christ, the power of the glorified Christ that is channeled to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts five thirty two. Now, this is not supposed to be a um, an exhaustive study of the Holy Spirit at all. All I want to do is to emphasize our new relationship with him in the present life, and then some examples of the Holy Spirit's activity is all we're giving now. And ye are his witnesses of these things, and so also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And what's he talking about in the 31st verse? Him, that's Christ, Hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and a forgiveness of sins, and then the Holy Spirit bears witness of this. You see, He's bearing witness to Christ. Now the Holy Spirit is the one who builds the church into a well-balanced whole, because He is the giver of the spiritual gifts which the church needs. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 13. And there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And the 13th verse For by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body, whether ye be Jews or Gentiles, whether ye are bond or free, and have been made to drink in the one Spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit. And he gives us a diversity of gifts. Now I want to point out again here already, although I want to end there. Uh, that just as in the case of the Father and the Son, these are things are not mechanical. They don't happen mechanically. There is something we have to do involved in this, and we can, we can break down these things through our, uh, our action. But nevertheless, if things were what they are, and, and God not resisted by the Christian, there is a diversity of gifts. We can count in a place like our community here, in La Brie, in our little church, in any Bible-believing church that if we are committed, if we're really committed to God, he will bring forth gifts into our midst that meets the need in a well-balanced whole. We, we, we don't think of this enough, it seems to me. It isn't just the church en bloc, en masse, the invisible church, but surely Christ's work in a locality, if it commits itself to him, can count on the proper gifts being brought into that situation. No one man's to have all the gifts. No one man is to have all the gifts. There is to be a balance of gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the the balance will be adjusted by the Holy Spirit himself if we allow him so to do. In Ephesians 2.22, Ephesians 2.22, "...in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit." Here is the group. And it's the Holy Spirit who, who provides what is needed that the thing be well-balanced and be what it should be. I'm just as convinced of this, that this is to be the practical way that we are to live. We are to, in expectancy, and by allowing the fruit to be brought forth in our midst, we are to expect that God will bring forth the gifts in the group which is needed for the fullness of the whole, so we can share from each other. There'll be different gifts. There'll be gifts of different kinds. There are all kinds of relationship, younger and older, more experienced, less experienced, all sorts of situations. But the whole the whole will be something that God Himself has built in the flow of a time of a work. But it does require our allowing him to do it, I would say again. So I don't want to go into that at the moment. That's the place to end this, I think. Second Corinthians thirteen, fourteen. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is is almost the key to the whole thing. This is the great, what's usually called the apostolic benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, so it's clearly the love of God the Father. So usually when we give this as a benediction, we say God the Father because clearly that's what's involved. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Now, surely, all too often we make this just a pious word at the end, in a bad sense, at the end of the uh, end of the service in the morning. The French translation, I think, is much better than the English here. It's the communication of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. That's surely what's involved. It's not an impersonal thing. It is a communication of the Trinity to us through the work, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. I remember when I was a younger Christian and I was struggling for some of these things in my own Bible study, I was upset one time, not upset, that's too strong, but disturbed by finding the holy spirit lived in me the, and christ lived in me and i found this very confusing maybe it sounds foolish but i did at that particular moment and then gradually it was resolved because i see how christ lives in us through the agency of the holy spirit that's the problem there's no confusion here, as we shall see in a moment we'll look at some verses that show that in the moment the indwelling holy spirit dwells in the individual christian and he communicates to the christian all the benefits of redemption. It is as though he were the pipeline of all the benefits of redemption. But he's not an impersonal pipeline. He is a person. So he communicates them to us. He isn't just a conduit through which the blessings run mechanically. He is a person, and there's a person-to-person relationship. So he communicates to the Christian all the pro- all the benefits of redemption. All of them. We have all these riches if we are living where we should in our present Christian life. And the Holy Spirit just... He is the communicator of this to us. So we find that it is all upon the basis of the finished work of Christ. And the only instrument to lay hold of it is by believing God in His promises by faith. But it will always be in the power of the Holy Spirit because he's the, he's the communicator of the power to us. He is the communicator of the power of the crucified and the resurrected Christ to us. Now, those of you who have finished the Book of Romans, you remember how much emphasis we put on this in the end of the Book of Romans. The power of the crucified and the risen Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And by faith, this is the instrument by which we lay hold of the present riches just as much as we laid a hold upon justification. And in the true spirituality studies, which come after this series of doctrines, there's this personal relationship we emphasise. Our relationship to God is not a mechanical. It's not primarily legal, though it is properly legal in justification. But it's personal, and we are even even the benefits of redemption are not mediated to us mechanically. It is a personal relationship. There is a Holy Spirit who lives within us, a Holy Spirit who has communication with us, who communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Now, in this matter of, of Christ indwelling, coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit, the book of John, the 14th chapter, 16 through 18. John 14, 16 through 18. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye, but ye know him, for he shall be with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. There are certain, certain things which are in the King James translation, and you wonder why they translate them as they did. And this is one. The French, again, is a better translation here. Because what it says, Christ is saying, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I will come to you. I'm not going to go away and then leave you uncared for in the world. I will come to you. That's his promise. But I will come to you how? Well, I will come to you in the sending of the Comforter. This is obviously what he's saying here. I will send to you. I will... I will come to you in the person of the comforter who will come so you don't have to worry you're not going to be an orphan you're not an orphan in this in this world even if you were suddenly cast down like like some of our dear christian brethren in china at present time some of these dear people that we love so well and that we know they're there shut away from everybody they're not orphans Sure, sometimes they feel like orphans, but they're not orphans. Christ is with them. This is meant to be a very practical word. They're not left alone. They're not left as orphans. Christ is with them, but Christ is with them in the person of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why he was able to say, it's to your advantage that I go away. In the book of Romans, In the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 9 through 11. And this is the great chapter of the Holy Spirit, of course. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the whole body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. You see how this is? He is the spirit of Christ. That's why he uses this terminology, this particular terminology here. Because, And if Christ be in you, is the, is the spirit there? Well, he's the spirit of Christ. And if he's in you, Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. By his spirit that dwelleth in you. So we find here Jesus' own words that, that he's coming. He was coming in the person of the Holy Spirit. And at Pentecost he came. And he is in us now, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. So the Holy Spirit is the agency of the crucified and the resurrected, and the glorified Christ, this marvelous glorified Christ. And then we find the same thing about the Father. And turning back to the book of John again, the 14th chapter, in John fourteen twenty-three, he's just been speaking, if you'll notice the context, of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's all... Uh, back in the 16th verse, I will pray the Father and He will give you another comforter and He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, etc 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 The 18th verse, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And then the 23rd verse, and my Father will love Him and we will come unto Him and make our abode with Him. And this is a very exciting verse. It's a unique verse, but one is enough. When the Holy Spirit comes just as I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. When the Holy Spirit comes, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So the Father makes his abode with us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, going back to Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communication of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This becomes a tremendous verse. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the agent the agent of the Trinity, to the individual Christian. My, what a personal relationship. You just feel the, the, the pulsing livingness of this. It's the very opposite of any mere mechanical sense. Now, if we look on a bit further about the work of the Holy Spirit by the promise of God, by the promise of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will be our comforter. In John fourteen twenty six, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. Now, this word comforter here, however, I have a feeling very often Christians think of this as, as far too, too little. I'm not quite sure. I have a feeling the word comforter, as it's translated in the King James Version, gives most people the idea merely of somebody drying your tears. Well, he dries our tears all right, but it's more than just a a sentimental sense of tear drying. I have a feeling a lot of people feel this sentimentally. And it's something much deeper than this. The Greek is the word paraclete. And in the Latin translation, it's advocate. They translated advocate, and this is a good translation. Your comfort is all right, too. but, But advocate is a strong word. He is protector. He is supporter. He is the agent of the Trinity. He's comforter, not just in some sentimental sense. Now, I'm not minimizing the glory and the wonder and the gentleness of his comfort to the individual Christian. I'm not doing that for a moment. But it isn't just a sentimental sense. It isn't just a romantic sense. But it's a real sense. He is the paraclete. He is the advocate. He is the protector. He is the supporter. He is the agent of the whole Trinity. And as such, he is peculiarly indeed one who can comfort. But not to comfort in just a sentimental sense, you see, at all. Something profound and deep. It's the the work of the whole Trinity, the glorified, the crucified, the raised, and the glorified Christ coming through him in his power to us in the time of our need. It is not a weak sense of comfort. It is a strong sense of comfort. It isn't just a negative sense of comfort. It's a positive strength of comfort, sense of comfort. In 1526... The same thing, but when the comforter is come, that is when the paraclete is come in sixteen seven nevertheless, I tell you a truth it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go away, not away, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will. glorified, the crucified, the raised, and the glorified Christ coming through him in his power to us in the time of our need. It is not a weak sense of comfort. It is a strong sense of comfort. It isn't just a negative sense of comfort. It's a positive strength of comfort, sense of comfort. In 1526, the same thing. But when the comforter has come, that is when the paraclete has come, In 16.7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This again is the paraclete. And we find an action of this in Acts 9.31. Acts 9.31, an action of the uh, Holy Spirit in this this sense that is promised here in the early church. An action in the Holy... In the early church, of the sense it was promised in the gospel to us, then had all the churches rest throughout Judea, Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. Notice how strong a word this is. It's anything, anything except a weak sense. The comfort of the Holy Ghost, edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, were multiplied. No, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is our comfort, is our teacher. It's very expressly promised, he is our teacher. Turning back to John 14 again, John 14:26. I'm repeating some of these verses, but different aspects each time. I think it's the best way to give this. John 14:26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. He is the teacher. He is a teacher. Now, I just want to point out that he's called the spirit of truth. And this connected with teaching means a content. It is the very opposite from the modern uh, modern existential experience or religious experience. It isn't a contentless experience. Even the work of the Holy Spirit is not to be seen as a contentless experience. It is a teaching of facts. It is a teaching of truth. He is the spirit of truth. He is the Holy Spirit, but he's the spirit of truth. There's a sense of content here in opposition to the modern man's concept of religious things being a a matter of experience only. It's experience, all right, but not experience only in a vague sense, in a contentless sense. In 1613, Howbeit when the Spirit of truth is come, you see, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Notice the emphasis here. He is the giver of truth, you see. There's content, there's pulsing content here. The Holy Spirit, it isn't just that the the truth is in the Bible, as it were, and then the Holy Spirit gives you some kind of feeling. The Bible won't allow us to have this. There's to be feeling all right. There's to be communication. There's to be personal relationship, but always in a certain framework, a framework of truth, a framework that has to do with content. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, which things also we speak, not in the words, words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Which things we speak. It's doctrine he's talking about. It's, again, the Holy Spirit is the giver of knowledge, you see. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Yes, I didn't read the twelfth verse. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things which are freely given as a God. Putting these two verses together as I say, the thing I would leave here is he is a teacher. He isn't just a giver of vague experiences. Oh, I'm not minimizing the experience. I, I believe in Christian mysticism. After all, I've, I've made the biggest statement of Christian mysticism that could ever be made tonight. And that is we're, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and there is to be a a communication from him to us. Not just a, a vague word, communion, in an abstract sense, but communication, the communication of the Holy Ghost. So I believe in, in a Christian mysticism. But the Christian mysticism is not to be pitted against knowledge, that's my point. It is within a certain framework of truth and knowledge. And in Hebrews 10, 15, and 16... Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, This is the covenant which I will make when those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. So here's this internal work of the Holy Spirit. But again, you notice he is a teacher, the emphasis here. And 1 John two twenty and 27. 1 John two twenty and 27. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. And so it's knowledge again. In the 27, But the anointing which we have received of him abideth in you, and ye have not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And again, it's, it's in the area of knowledge. Now then, in the area of specific knowledge is the is the fact that the Bible promises that it is the work of the Holy Spirit which will give us the proper words to speak in the very hard place, and specifically the hour of persecution. In the book of Luke 12, 11, and 12. And we have a right to count on this. We have a right to cry to God on the basis of his promise for this. In Luke 12, 11, and 12. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and under the magistrates and powers, taking no thought, how ye what ye shall answer, or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. this is a specific promise. There's many a time in my discussions that I claim this promise, I must say. Many a time in, 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 in the hour of attack that we can claim this promise. It's the promise of right words in the hour of persecution. You're not to, we're to avail ourselves of all the knowledge, proper knowledge we can have, but the trust must be in the work of the Holy Spirit. He may dish up out of us, as it were, things we have previously learned in the more normal fashion. He may pour up out of us remembrances or portions of the Word of God. But the trust is not to be in bare knowledge. The trust is in the work of the Holy Spirit and the promise of God at this place. Now, there's two other things that must be said, and that is that it is upon the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we are to look for power. I have just talked about looking only uh, for, uh, to the Holy Spirit for the words, for the proper words. But it's the only source of power we are to look to. In uh, uh, Acts 1, 1-8, he, he is the one. He mediates to us the power of Christ, the power of (coughs) Christ as he won the right to this in his crucifixion, his resurrection, that ye shall receive power. This is the word dunamis. It's the word dynamite here. The church is a... It's Acts 1.8. The church is a... Where is the power? We must say... When we look at a day like our own, Power, there's nothing but snores all too often. And we mustn't think of others. We must think of ourselves. A weakness beyond all words. But there is to be dunamis. Power, dynamite, explosive power, revolutionary power. That you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. The word then isn't in the Greek, but surely the meaning is there. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and then ye shall be witnesses unto me. It says, as the Holy, we look to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as he mediates to us the power of Jesus Christ, as Christ is now glorified. And it's to be in this power that we're to be witnesses. A good point can be made that to that extent which we're witnesses in our own strength we're not witnesses at all. And surely we must acknowledge that all too much much of Christian activity falls into this classification. It is something else. It certainly cannot be said to be witnessing in this specific sense, which is the biblical sense, of the power of the resurrected and the crucified Christ uh, flowing through me and flowing through us in the uh, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for him to be bringing forth a witness with force, dunamis, power, and then it is to be remembered that the that the the Christian's life is to be is to be through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit he is he dwelling in us is to bring forth the fruit in us it is Christ to bring forth his fruit as the bridegroom through us, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We're not to be trying... We're not trying to try to produce it ourselves. This can be something. It can be an exhibition of my character. But it certainly isn't to be considered spiritual fruit. Real spiritual fruit is always through the agency of the Holy Spirit, bringing forth Christ's fruit through through me. In uh, Romans 5, 5, "...and hope maketh not ashamed..." Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. We're not going to be disappointed experientially after we have accepted Christ as our Savior. Why? Because the, the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's the reason we're not going to be be going to be disappointed experientially. It isn't just because we're nice and clever or something like this or we take a bath every day. If you know what I mean? It's quite the other direction. It's removed from us. The certainty of not being disappointed is in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Him bringing forth the fruit through us. In Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness in the Holy Ghost, peace in the Holy Ghost, joy in the Holy Ghost. The indwelling of the Spirit is to... Is as we allow him to brings forth these fruits in us in Romans 15:13 now the god of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the holy ghost through the power of the holy ghost joy in believing peace in believing well here's the here's the here's the action of faith the instrumentality of faith the power is through the holy spirit the instrumentality of laying hold of these things is through the is through believing in First Thessalonians one six. First Thessalonians one six. The word is so abundantly plain, you see, as to our riches in this present life. There is a a fallacy in preaching justification, as though it as though then the next step is heaven. A tremendous, awful fallacy. There will be heaven if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, but there are riches in the present life, not abstract riches, but riches in relationship to our re- living relationship to each of the three persons of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit living in us. 1 Thessalonians one six, And he became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. There is the joy. The joy is not in... The joy is not e- in, is in, in abstract life, being in relationship to the right doctrine, even though this is right and proper. And you must have the right doctrine before you are born again and before you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being born again. But having said this, having the right doctrine, the calling is, is not just to this. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life now. Then is the, the joy of believing. And of course, the most clearest verses of all perhaps the ones one might think of first would be Galatians 5 Galatians 5 22 and 23 so plain and so beautiful Galatians 5 22 and 23 but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long suffering gentleness goodness faith meekness temperance against such there is no law it's the uh, it's the fruit of the of the spirit these things they're not to be the fruit of my own character it's quite contrary the bible doesn't say where is your character the bible says let the holy spirit bring forth the fruit through you you notice the framework here in the 16th verse this i say walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh it's walking in the spirit and the after this in the 25th verse if ye live in the spirit let us also walk in the spirit if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're, you're living in the Spirit, all right? Now walk in the Spirit, you see. And in the 16th verse, walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But you'll notice now we have a new note added here. And that is the note that though we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there's something for us. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit does not produce a mechanical situation. There is the, there is the command, walk in the Spirit. This is an imperative have we accepted Christ as our Savior? You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely right. But now if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then comes the command. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. We're moving in the direction now, you see, uh, that we found in relationship to our adoption and to our relationship to Christ. It's not left as mechanical. It's to be a personal commitment. The bride must give herself to the bridegroom, not just on the marriage day, but every day. Every day, so it is never mechanical. It's perfectly true, of course, that is, is that our sanctification is a process, as it is pictured in the in the Reformed uh, theologies. This is right. But what is not right is any idea that this is a mechanical process. It is a personal process. It is a personal process in which I'm not a stick or a stone. I have a part. I have a part. I have a calling. There is an imperative involved. Walking spirit. Now the Bible makes very plain that that while it is true that I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit there's a difference between being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and filled by the Spirit. There's a difference. In Ephesians 5:18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. It's a command. D.L. Moody used to speak, people used to say, do you believe being filled of the Spirit? He'd say, yes, he believes 10,000 fillings. Well, he's right. This is the theology. I think very many people who, who teach the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who have done it best, I think a lot of their mistake is terminology, actually. I think they have had, some of them, come to a realization, uh, had a knowledge come to them, and a practice in which they have learned the reality of... Uh, of uh, committing themselves to Christ in such a way that they are, they know filling of the Spirit. It doesn't mean you're not indwelt by the Spirit. I think it's absolutely false to use the term baptism of the Spirit for something subsequent to being born again. You're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, we must see that that doesn't mean that we are always filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is in excess, but in contrast to being drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And in Acts 4.31, you have the classical proof of this, that it is possible to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and yet not filled by the Spirit. And the filling of the Spirit is not just a once-for-all thing, though the indwelling is. So in Acts 2, you have they're just gone through Pentecost. And a very short time later, you find the same men who went through Pentecost coming in Acts 4.31, and we find them praying to God. And as they're praying to God, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. We find them here, these very men who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, crying to God in a time of special need, facing persecution. And as they were facing persecution, they cried to God, and they were... Filled with the Holy Ghost and then came the preaching of the Word of God with boldness. Never mind what men say now, even if they kill us. So here you see, now you see, we're coming to where I think we ought to end the study like this. Everybody is indwelt by the Holy Spirit if he's accepted Christ as his Savior. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within us. But there is now the, the imperative walk in the Spirit. The seeing that there is such a thing as being filled with the Spirit And then there is the negative side of this. I think this is just one coin with a positive and a negative. And the negative is, I think the positive is the walking in the Spirit. The positive is the being filled with the Spirit. But there is a negative. The Bible tells us we can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. So even though he dwells within us, this guest who lives within, this third person, the Trinity, it is perfectly possible to quench him, to grieve him. Now you'll notice in John 15:18 we pointed out it is perfectly possible in relationship to the Father not to glorify Him as we should. In relationship to Philippians 1:20, it's possible not to give glory to the Son as we should in the present life. Well, now the parallel to that in the relationship to the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians 4:30 and 1 Thessalonians 5:19. And you must remember the Holy Spirit is not it; He's a He. He's a He so he is grievable. if anybody ever says well you sh- the holy spirit is a person well does he have emotions and the answer is yes he has emotions he's a person just as the it says the the father has a person uh, emotions he loved the world so that he sent his son and obviously christ has emotions the second person of trinity but the third person the trinity has emotions for in ephesians 430 Grieve not. And, the, and again, the French is a much better translation here. It's don't make him sad. Don't make him sad, it says in the French. Don't make him tryst. Don't make the Holy Spirit sad, whereby you're sealed under the day of redemption. You are sealed under the day of redemption. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, his indwelling seals you to the day of redemption. You won't lose him, and you won't be lost again. By him you're sealed under the day of redemption, but you can grieve him, you can make him sad. Ephesians in First Ephesian, in Thessalonians five nineteen. Naturally, if we're making him sad, we're not filled with the spirit. This is, I say, I think this is the positive and negative of the same teaching. First Thessalonians five nineteen. Quench not the spirit. It's a command against imperative. Quench not the spirit. Don't cover him over the way you would put a snuffer down on something. Don't do this. Don't do this. Now we have we have a couple we have a couple places where we have terrible warning about what it means to 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 maltreat the Holy Spirit. In Acts five, we have the most terrible word. Acts five three through nine. And incidentally, I think. These people were, Ananias and Sapphira, were, were dealt with in this way as a warning to us for our whole era of how serious it is. What they did is they lied to the Holy Ghost. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie, to deceive the Holy Ghost? He said he was going to give it, and he kept it back. He told a lie. He thought he could lie. And he was really found himself lying to the Holy Spirit, and he the punishment was death at this particular time. Seems to me, those of you who remember my studies in Joshua, that there's a parallel here between this and the death of Achan. When the Jews were coming into the land, there was this tremendous warning given to them in Achan. When we were entering our new era here, of the era of after Pentecost, there's a tremendous warning of Ananias and Sapphira to carry down through the whole whole uh, era the same thing is repeated in the ninth verse then peter said to her how to the wife now how is it that thou agreed together to tempt the spirit of god it's a very sobering word surely it's not to be down, lightly dealt with we are indwelt by the holy spirit but we can grieve the spirit is lying to the spirit these, these things were well, surely this is the negative of of, of the very opposite of being filled with the spirit in act 7:51. now i know it's a little over but i want to finish i've only got about another three minutes or so and i, I don't want to have to pick this up in the next lecture in act 7 51 Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so did ye. This is Stephen speaking to the unsaved. It's perfectly true. But it's the same picture. The picture of, there's not a, it isn't a mechanical situation here. It's never mechanical. God has made us as personal, and he will not deal with us like machines. You can just put this down. God is made as his personal, and he will not violate his creation of us. We are, And when we are saved in a very special way, we are returned to him, our guilt is gone, and we must give ourselves. It is related, you see, to giving yourself to the bridegroom again. And Hebrews 10.29. Hebrews 10.29. 20, but it's a negative thing. We can say no. It's an awful thing to say no. And in our true spirituality tapes, in our Christian life, we, we speak of the oceans of grace that are there. And we can keep our finger, as it were, willfully in the aperture that stops the, the, the grace from flowing forth. Hebrews 10, 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant. Where when, he, where when he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite under the Spirit of Christ. Now, I think this is, this is the man who is not the saved man, but who is under the external blessings of the covenant. This is the person raised in a Christian church and then just walks on, walks on all the external blessings he has possessed. And God is saying, don't forget, there's a seriousness to this. There's a seriousness. I am the holy God. Now, Dr. Charles Hodge, the great Reformed theologian in Princeton, Old Princeton Seminary before I went liberal, he spoke this way about the Holy Spirit, and I think it's worth copying down. The great distinction of a true Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How careful should he be lest anything in his thoughts or feelings would be offensive to this divine guest? That's a tremendous important work we have a divine guest we have a divine guest we are the temple and he is our guest he lives within us now surely in a normal household when an honored guest is there he is not insulted he is not to be insulted and we have the most honored of guest that is imaginable the third person the trinity living within us he is our guest how careful we must be not to insult him. And doctor, I'll repeat it again. The great distinction of a true Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Period. How careful should he be? Comma. Lest anything in his thoughts or feelings would be offensive to this divine guest. End of quote. And that's Dr. Charles Hodge, And he's absolutely right. This is the thing that marks the Christian. Christian living on this side of the cross that we're actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And how important it is not to grieve him. And when we grieve him, the whole, we're not walking in the Spirit. And these all these things just grind, as it were, down. We've talked about the wonder of it. It's not mechanical, you see. Now, what is sin? What sin grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, the sin that grieves the Holy Spirit is not just some big black sin. We can all think of sin, some big black sin that we can sort of tie to this, but that isn't what's involved. The sin that grieves the Holy Spirit is anything in thought, word, or deed that does not show forth the character of God, either his holiness or his love. Anything in our individual life or our corporate lives that so does. And I worked this sentence out a lot of thought at one time in my own spiritual struggles. And I'm convinced this is it. What is the sin that grieves the Holy Spirit and cuts his lesson short? It's anything in thought, word, or deed that does not show forth the character of God. On one side is holiness. On the other side is love. And that's true whether it be in my individual life or our corporate life. And this is the sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. And begins to diminish the blessing. Now then, this brings to the close this part of our study. The first blessing of salvation is justification. God declares our guilt gone on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Immediately and simultaneously, with guilt removed, we come into a new and living relationship with each of the three mem- members of the Trinity. God the Father is the Christian's father second the only begotten Son of God is our Savior and Lord our prophet priest and king we are identified and united with him we have a mystical we are a mystical union with Christ three the Holy Spirit lives in us and deals with us he communicates to us the manifold, blessings of redemption this brings to a close our 23rd study of the doctrine of the bible